Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So excited for our show today. We're going to learn so much about our food, which, you know, what could be more important? The thing that fuels us in everything that we want to accomplish in our lives. And I'm super excited about the guests that we have on today. They are the authors of a brand new book called What Your Food Ate. Um, David Montgomery is a professor of earth science, earth and space sciences at UW, also known as University of Washington. So he is one of the co-authors and his wife, Anne Beclay, is also one of the co-authors. And we are so excited um, to have them both on the show to talk to us about what our food ate. Uh, welcome to Go Green Radio, Anne and David. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you. We're delighted to be here. Yeah, our pleasure. Well, I have to tell you guys, I've I've been sort of fan stalking you for a while because for months I've been watching <laughs> your book because I knew it was going to be published. I saw the the write up on it, the one pager, and I could not wait to get a hold of it. And then once I did, I could not wait to get you guys on the show. So I am really excited to have you on. Um, so this new book, What Your Food Ate, is the fourth book in your journey of asking questions and writing about connections between people, agriculture, and health. And in order to prepare all of us to talk about your new book, I would love to have you tell us briefly about the topics that you cover in your previous three books, which are Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, The Hidden Half of Nature, and growing a revolution. So kind of bring us up to speed a little bit on what you covered there so that we can dive into book number four. Yeah, well, the, the three that you mentioned are what Anne and I lovingly call our Dirt Trilogy, because um, <laughs> it started with the, with the book Dirt. And we, we didn't really intend to write a whole series of books about the relationship between people, agriculture, and health. But uh, Dirt is what kicked it off. Um, and uh, What's Your Food Aid is sort of where we ended up on this journey. And you can read them in any order. They're all standalone. But what Dirt looks at is the state of the world's soils and kind of defines the problem of how we have degraded soils around the world uh, over the long history of agriculture and how that has affected human societies you know, time and again in different parts of the world. And the short description of that book is that societies that didn't take care of their land and didn't take care of their soil didn't last. And then Anne and I wrote The Hidden Half of Nature together after I wrote Dirt, and that is more about the, our exploration of the insight and understanding of what it is about life in the soil, microbes, uh, bacteria, and fungi in the soil, how that all, our new understanding, our new scientific understanding of that influences how we think about soil health and fertility and agriculture. And then Growing a Revolution, the third in that series, is looking at the cure or the fix. How do we use that insight and understanding to solve the problems of land degradation? And that was sort of the turning point for us in terms of moving from pessimism to optimism, uh, and, mm -hmm. because it's a, these are problems that can be solved. Um, and that's, those books really set up the question in Anne, in my mind, about you know, what's the impact of how we farm, how does that affect the soil health, and then how does that translate into influencing human health? So that's the, how we, what we explore in the new book. 
And and it is a great book. I read it cover to cover. And, you know, I, I've got lots of questions, but uh, believe me when I say I have hundreds more <laughs> if we had all day <laughs> to be on the show, but but I'll just keep it to the ones that I think we can cover uh, in this episode. But help us understand how it is that we live in a time when global agriculture has never produced a higher yield, and yet the nutritional value of the food is much lower than it used to be. Yeah, that's it's it, that's a bit you know on the surface of it, that's a bit of a conundrum. And but the resolution is that we've we really focused in the 20th century on increasing agricultural yields. So all our our agronomic uh, research and methods and development, um, you know, we're, we're mainly focused on how do we grow a lot of calories? How do we feed the world? Which is obviously a very good and noble goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but to do that, we really bred uh, in the the crop breeding. Uh, world for high yields under high nitrogen load. So uh, lots of nitrogen fertilizer. We selected for crops that did really well in that, those kinds of environments. And the backstory, I told a bit about that in the dirt book about how um, you know, the fertilizer intensive agriculture worked pretty well because we had already degraded the soil in many um, uh, parts of the developed world. But in breeding for high yields under high nitrogen, um, we didn't select also for mineral uptake, and we did not really understand the role, the important role of soil life in provisioning crops with micronutrients, minerals, and with phytochemicals, compounds that help support the health of both the crops and then us when they get into us. And so that by raising crops and and selecting crops for performance in terms of just yield, uh, we ended up engaging uh, two effects, one known as the dilution effect, with, through which you can think of if a, if a plant, say a wheat plant, is taking up a certain amount of iron from the soil, and we've bred that wheat plant to have twice as many seeds, so it produces a higher yield, it's spreading that zinc or that iron, whatever minerals that it's are taking up, through more seeds, so each seed gets less. So if it's taking up the same amount and you have twice the yield, you get half the zinc in each seed. And so that dilutes the nutritional component of what's in our food but also through practices that undermined our crop's fungal partners in the soil. We interrupted uh, some of the key biological ways that minerals get out of soil particles and into plants. Um, So really in sort of focusing on higher yielding crops, we inadvertently lowered the micronutrient and phytochemical levels in our crops because of the, the practices that we engaged in to get those high yields. In other mm-hmm. words, we, we only had our eye on one ball when, in terms of feeding the world. And now we've, known, we've learned enough in the last 80 years um, to really understand more about what it would take to not only grow high yields, but also to grow nutrient-dense foods in those high yields. And so what Ann and I argue is that while we've nobly spent many uh, decades as a collective endeavor trying to feed the world, we now need to focus on not only feeding the world, but how to nourish the world. Absolutely. And and it, it is such a conundrum. You know, we were so hyper-focused on ending starvation um, that that we neglected to, to take into account some of the other health factors that could be impacted um, by our agricultural processes. And so I'm interested in, in hearing more. And when we eat, you know, fresh foods and we're hoping to get uh, some of the nutritional minerals that our bodies need for fuel. Um, you know, it, it's really important for us, I think, to know about how those minerals actually get into the food we eat, because this is kind of the premise of what you're talking about in the book. So help us understand that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. 
Um, well, you know, soil, of course, um, holds rocks. And that might seem kind of boring and like, what are these rocks <laughs> doing down in the soil? Well, they're actually breaking down. And rocks contain, you know, everything that um, the human body needs in terms of, of mineral elements. And so this is stuff like copper, like zinc, like iron. And we need just a little bit of those things, but they're very, very important. And so how do they, they make it out of rocks, they're sitting there in the soil, and how do they get into us? Well, this is where David mentioned fungal partners. And so Mm -hmm. there's two basic ways they get into us. One of them is through what I call the fetching fungi. So these are particular uh, fungi that associate with the roots of a plant and they can extend their reach, these fungi, far distant from where a plant's roots go. And they're able to take in these mineral elements and use their fungal bodies and transport mineral elements back to the plant. And so that's sort of a direct delivery service. And then there's there's Another way in which this also um, occurs, and that's when we have our, our, de- our microbial decomposers. So this is stuff like bacteria. And there they are, you know, chowing and chewing and breaking down um, plant material, dead plant material, dead animals, anything that lands in the soil that gets decomposed. Bacteria are a big part of that. And why that's so important is that it's essentially like... Um, there's this package of nutrients in the soil, and our decomposers, they're opening up these packages, and they're laying out all of the things in that package right there at the doorstep um, of a plant down by its roots. So those are, those are sort of the two basic ways that once minerals are, are um, out of rocks and just sitting around there in the soil, those are two basic ways that um, our microbial communities help to deliver these minerals to the plants. It's fascinating. And I remember when my son took a course on fungi in, um, at UC Santa Cruz a few years ago, he called me once and he was like, Mom, I don't know why everybody isn't talking about fungi. You know, and I said, yeah, me, me either, son. I, I don't know why that is, but it is fascinating. Uh, I loved chapter three of your book. It chronicles research that started, gosh, almost a century ago um, that links agricultural practices and human health. I'd love for you to walk us through some of your findings. Yeah, that's one of the fun things about writing a book like this is we got to go back and research, you know, what people were thinking and how how thinking about nutrition and agriculture and relationships evolved over time. And there's a series of people back in the 30s and 40s, people like um, um, McCarrison and Albert Howard, Eve Balfour, uh, figures that were very concerned about the move towards uh, modern farming practices, fertilizer-intensive practices in particular, and they're concerned about what that might be doing to the food supply based on experiments they ran on rats, feeding them grains that were grown with with chemical fertilizers versus grown organically and looking at the health effects of that or um, examples where boarding schools would change their diet from, you know, sort of fresh whole foods to more processed foods grown with with fertilizers and see the health effects that, that came from that. Most of their observations were, were anecdotal. There were some experiments, um, and they, they had compelling anecdotes about the connection, about a, a decline in, um, in health that resulted from 
a change to a more to the, the the modern English diet, but they lacked ways to explain it. They lacked really understanding of mechanisms. And there's one thing scientists are really good at: it's criticizing ideas that don't <laughs> have a mechanism or an explanation mm-hmm. behind it. And one of the things we do in the book is look at how that science has advanced over the last 80 years, and it's filled in a lot of the details about what it is that explains the observations that those early pioneers of organic agriculture were were um, offering. And you know, can, can summarize that into it appears that you know modern farming practices have undermined sort of three things in our collective diets in terms of the micronutrient concentration, the, the minerals that we were just talking about moments ago, the levels of phytochemicals, things like antioxidants and anti-inflammatories in, uh, when they get into our bodies, and it's also changed the fat profile in uh, meat and dairy. And so there's, we go through a lot of sort of interesting uh, examples from the early era of agriculture, uh, and then going through and look at how the new science that understands the role of life in the soil and its connection to to crops and then how that affects the nutritional profile of crops mm-hmm. um, the scales up into our diets and our health. It's fascinating. And, and I mean, I, I loved every chapter, but chapter three really got me because, uh, of course, I care about human health. We talk about the environmental impact of a lot of different things on human health. So I really love that chapter. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with David and Anne. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guests today are the authors of a brand new book called What Your Food Ate, 
how to heal our land and reclaim our health. Um, and I am so thrilled to have them on the show. This book is jam-packed with amazing information, amazing research. In fact, the the references that they cite are so long that they didn't print them. They're available on their website, which you got to check out. Um, I think it's like, what, 52 pages or something. But dig dig the number two grow. Dig to grow is their website. And, and you can check out all of their references too. I mean, this was a thoroughly researched um, book. So I want to go back to talking about agricultural practices. And I want you to tell us why plowing is kind of a double-edged sword for farmers and soil and ultimately what impact plowing might have on human health. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we think about plowing as this absolutely iconic act um, mm -hmm. of farming and agriculture, you know, from the, the, the first person who started to drag a stick through the soil and then, you know, onto animals and now we're onto tractors. And, the good thing about plowing is that it allows a farmer to get really good contact between the seeds that they're dropping in the soil and the soil itself, because, of course, the whole point of this is to get that seed to germinate and grow a crop. And plowing is a part of getting that, that good contact with the soil. The other reason is that in between the crops that um, a farmer may grow, other plants come in, the weeds, and mm -hmm. farmers really don't like weeds. And so part of, you know, preparing a field or a bed is plowing to also get rid of the weeds. But unfortunately, this is sort of, you know, a natural disaster for soil life because, of course, we have trillions of tiny, tiny creatures living down there in the soil. And so to them, it's almost as if, you know, a tornado has whipped through. You know, the roof has been mm -hmm. torn off the mm -hmm. house and and everyone's been thrown up against the walls or smashed or crushed or something like that. So it's plowing is pretty hard on soil life, and it, it also really speeds up the process um, by which organic matter is decomposed. And you don't want that going too fast because it'll, it'll move nutrients out of the soil and make them unavailable to plants. But what does this all mean then for um, for us? And previously, I had talked about, you know, the fetching fungi and the bacterial decomposers. Those are just, you know, two, two examples of soil life. There's a lot of other things down there, though, earthworms and protozoans, all kinds of things. And they're all part of this ecosystem. And, and a one of the primary things that happens in this ecosystem is nutrient cycling and getting nutrients to plants. And, and, and not only that, but as it turns out, plants are also feeding these microbes with what are called exudates that flow out through the roots. Microbes, bacteria in particular, will consume those exudates, and they make other compounds and molecules that the plant takes back up, many of which benefit plant health. And so... A tornado whips through this community, and we've thrown the fetchers, the decomposers, the transformers all off the job, and the plant is kind of sitting there high and dry without, you know, with all, without all of its main partners that it really needs for, for not just growth, but also for, for health. So that's, that's sort of the double-edged nature of things, Jill. Mm -hmm. That makes that makes sense. And, you know, we don't think about 
um, <laughs> soil sometimes being this complex ecosystem, we just think of it as dirt and, you know, just, just a thing, you know, just a little dirt, but it's, it's actually a very complicated ecosystem. You know, on Go Green Radio, we've talked about the impacts of nitrogen fertilizer, uh, particularly as it relates to agricultural runoff and what happens when a whole lot of nitrogen fertilizer ends up in fresh waterways and we talk about algae blooms and things like that. But what does nitrogen fertilizer do to the soil? Well, it really does sort of two important things that are related to uh, um, crop health, crop yields, the health of the soil, and ultimately what gets into our food. And one is that uh, nitrogen fertilizers... um, uh, accelerate bacterial decomposition. It kind of stimulates soil bacteria to further degrade soil organic matter. And what organic matter is, is it, it's basically dead stuff. It's stuff that was once living. The remains of prior uh, plants, roots that are, uh, you know, are dead or rotting in the soil. Uh, and the key thing about organic matter is it contains in it many, uh, well, it has nitrogen as well, but it also has uh, other mineral micronutrients that plants need to grow because they were once living organisms. So as their bodies rot, those elements are liberated back into the nutrient cycling that Anne was talking about that's driven by soil life. And so uh, nitrogen fertilizers can accelerate the decomposition of soil organic matter, which is really undermining uh, the currency, if you will, that drives um, uh, nutrient cycling in the soil. It degrades native soil fertility. Uh, of course, it can prop up yields, which is what nitrogen is uh, intended to do, but it undermines the native fertility of the soil, which means you become very dependent on nitrogen fertilizers. And they also uh, disrupt the fungal uh, partners of crops that Dan is talking about, those fetching fungi. So it can, ups- it can disrupt how, those, um, how plants get their micronutrients because if, if a plant is getting all the major nutrients, all the nitrogen it needs, they get lazy and they don't recruit as many microbial partners. Mm-hmm. So they lose out on some of the micronutrients and they lose out on producing some of the phytochemicals that are then important in, in our diets. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some of the human health impacts of too much nitrate in our diets? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question, Jill. And it, it has to, I mean, we've all heard that you know, you should really limit the amount of nitrates in your diet. And this is, this is one of the problems with uh, ultra-processed meats. Think back, you know, to the days of Oscar Mayer luncheon meats, you know, the salami, <laughs> bologna, and all of that stuff. Well, the, to, to make that kind of a product, it takes a lot of nitrates. And what we, we because they're a preservative. Yeah. And what we now know about a diet high in nitrates is that it, enters our bodies and partly through gut microbiota, these nitrates get turned into different compounds. Um, Nitrosamines are are one example. But unfortunately, these compounds are toxic to our cells. And um, if there's one thing cells of the human body don't like, it's continued exposure to... um, well, to talk toxic compounds and caustic mm-hmm. things. And so this is, this is why you want to not be consuming a ton of nitrate in your diet. Now, you know, once a week a salami sandwich, that's fine. That's not going to be a problem. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about how, in particular in the heartland of our country, and the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that's used, uh, an awful lot of that ends up in drinking water supplies, whether that's mm-hmm. a, a well or a municipal 
water system. This is a big issue in the city of Des Moines um, uh, recently. And so you're not, you know, that's not just like a salami sandwich a week. That's continued exposure to nitrates multiple times a day over the course of one's life or decades. And so this is, this is really not a good situation for, you know, all of the cells that line the digestive tract. And, and a, another example of why, you know, you should be concerned about nitrate in your diet, there's, there's something called blue baby syndrome, and just the, the name of that alone. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's not a thing that pregnant women, you know, even want to mess around with, but it has been linked to excessive nitrates in drinking water. So that sort of all goes back to what Dave was talking about and, and you know, it's sort of one of the hidden sides of using nitrogen fertilizer on soils is that it can end up in our bodies. Yeah. You know, there's a, a growing movement to produce food indoors in soil-less conditions. I'd love for you to talk to us about what might be missing from those foods that could impact human health. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a great question because if, if the, um, you know, if you're growing, if plants are taking up micronutrients and making phytochemicals in response to their interactions with life in the soil. What if there's no soil? Mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, there's not a ton of research on that, I think is one of the findings um, that we pulled together in the book. But there's grounds for sort of asking those questions. In terms of like mineral micronutrients, you know, a hydroponic farmer, if you had the right stuff that was soluble that you could put in the, the liquids that the plants were taking up through the roots, you could, you could balance the micronutrient profile in terms of the minerals. But how many hydroponic farmers are paying that much attention to that level of detail in, in say, the, the, the micronutrients? And in terms of phytochemicals, that's a whole other deal. Because if yeah. there's no soil, there's no soil life. So it's an area that deserves a whole lot more attention, I think. It sure does. And actually, chapter nine of your book goes into great detail about the connection between phytochemicals and their impact on our health. Um, You write that they work through a different mechanism than the vitamins and minerals that we consume to support and protect human health. And I'd love for you to help us understand how we can get more phytochemicals in our diet and the benefits of doing so. Yeah. So phytochemicals, you know, they they come out of a plant's body. And, and part of the reason for that is that here you are, this green plant, you're stuck in place. And, you know, we humans may walk around and go, gee, that, that plant's, you know, sitting there like a sitting duck. It's going to be attacked by pests and pathogens. And yet, you look around our planet, and we see forests, and we see wetlands, and we see grasslands. And these plants are, you know, in many cases, thriving. And part of that Part of the reason for that is that they've figured out how to deal with their stuck-in-place lifestyle by producing phytochemicals. They really are these nature's sort of greatest living natural um, chemistry sort of factories. And phytochemicals are made in a plant when they're exposed to stressors. So this is things like... um, a low nitrogen environment can actually spur phytochemical development in plants. Some pest pressure, you, of course, you don't want pests, you know, consuming your entire crop, but a little bit of, you know, a nibble here and there, that kind of fires up the plant immune system, and part of that is spurring phytochemical production. And then, um, and so what does this do for us? 
I'll talk uh, a little bit about that later, but the benefits of getting phytochemicals in our diet is we get a whole suite of benefits that are different than what um, the plant benefits from with its own phytochemicals, but there's a number of things. And then just one, one last thing here is that we are now learning that phytochemicals that are in the human diet, part of the benefits to us come through uh, how our own microbiome is sort of fermenting and breaking down those um, phytochemicals. They're turning some of them into different compounds that have medicinal and beneficial effects in our bodies. That's fascinating. And, you know, here's what I love so much about what you're talking about, Anne and Dave, and, and your book. This is information that we... <laughs> We don't get from the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, all these other things mm. that try to tell us what we should eat. Mm -hmm. What you are describing is what it's going to take to really move to healthy, nutritious eating. And it's not just about our individual choices, but we're, we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But it's also about, honestly, some public policy that needs to happen around our agricultural practices. Um, and, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more with Ann and Dave and their new book, What Your Food Ate. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We are talking about a brand new book that I highly recommend. It's called What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. And we have the co-authors of the book on today. And this book is, is really fascinating. It digs in so much deeper than any other 
book and I've read I've read a few. You guys know that if you've been listening to the show for a while um, on things like regenerative farming and, and things like that, this really gets down into the nitty gritty of what our bodies need for good health and why our current agricultural practices may be a hindrance to that, to say the least. Uh, chapter 10 of your book uh, does a great job of outlining how prevalent pesticides are in our bodies and that dietary intake is probably the most likely source of those pesticides that, that are found in our bodies. Um, talk to us about the human health impacts of pesticides in our diet. Yeah, sure. So, Jill, you had mentioned um, 52 pages of references, and you count all those up, and it was about a 1,000 different um, papers that we used uh, to form the research foundation for the book. And I have to say, there was not one study that we came across in those thousand that said, hey, it's a good idea to be eating pesticides. We found, mm -hmm. you know, benefits for human health. No, every yeah. single study on that topic um, basically said that uh, it's pretty clear we don't want these in our bodies. And it's pretty clear that we don't have a complete understanding of them and their effects on human health other than that it's generally negative. But then, you know, people go down rabbit holes and try to identify exactly, uh, you know, how are these pesticides affecting us? And, and, you know, it often works in indirect ways. So, for example, you know, a pesticide may not be directly toxic, but what it might be doing is scrambling and scuttling um, cellular processes, you know, that we need to be having mm -hmm. um, functioning normally, not, you know, sort of just sort of doing a half job. And the other big area in, um, it's not just pesticides, but just sort of any chemical exposure is that we really don't have a complete understanding of the effects when you start combining these different things or they start coming into our bodies from different sources. So there's these synergistic effects. And, um, for all of us, you know, our exposures are different over our lifetime, and it's nearly impossible to really try and, and um, you know, analyze, okay, this person who lives in Illinois, they're exposed to these hundred things, this person in California, you know, these different hundred things. And so it makes it, it difficult um, to study, but sort of the bottom line on it all is that we really don't want any pesticides in our bodies because they're not doing anybody any good in that way. And, and in particular, the toll is really greatest on those whose exposure is highest. And so this is going to be our farmers and farm workers. And that, that is a big concern. So, you know, all around, um, we really need to be looking at ways of, of reducing, if not, you know, eliminating um, pesticides. Couldn't agree with you more. And that ambiguity of exactly what human health impacts are caused by individual pesticides um, has been such a convenient cover <laughs> for mm -hmm. uh, any public policy that would have eradicated um, the use of certain chemicals. It hasn't been a big barrier for a lot of other countries that have banned some of these chemicals, but in the in the U.S., we still have, you know, the, the chemical soup um, that we're dealing with. So thanks for that. I'd love for you to tell us about Jonathan Lundgren's Blue Dasher Farm and some of the lessons that it holds for other farmers. 
Yeah, Jonathan is a very interesting character. He's an entomologist turned farmer. So he was a PhD <laughs> level research insect guy uh, who has decided that he, well, he was working on uh, you know alternatives to um, uh, chemical pesticides and. His, the basic lesson of his farm, and I can describe his farm in a little detail in a moment, but the basic lesson is that we don't need to use so many pesticides to control pests because nature has a very effective means of controlling pests, and it's other organisms. So mm-hmm. when we use... Um, when we use broad-spectrum pesticides, you know, insecticides, for example, to kill insect uh, herbivores, we're also killing the things that eat those pests. And if you think about back to, you know, if you've ever had an ecology class, that famous example of like wolves and deer on an island up in Canada, it's like mm-hmm. the deer swim to the island, their population starts going up, the wolves notice, they swim over, they start eating some of the deer. When the deer crash, after the wolf, what the wolves have to eat is gone, they crash too. What comes back first? It's not the wolves, it's the deer. Mm-hmm. So when we take out the predators of insects, we basically uh, allow them, the pests, to come back first. The weedy species come back first. And what Jonathan's demonstrated on his farm is that there's other means of controlling pests with biology, and he's got a very diverse, um, a very diverse farm that raises sheep, bees, and crops. Um, and his basic ideas feed the pollinators, grow diver- and that diversity translates into productivity on the farm and provide habitat for what you want to have there, and then they will come. And one of the very uh, sort of underappreciated uh, things you can glean from the scientific literature is that organic farms tend to have fewer pest problems than conventional farms. And at mm-hmm. first blush, that seems a little counterproductive. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Farms that use less pesticides uh, have fewer pests, and it's because of that effect where pet broad-spectrum pesticides are taken out the predators of pests as well. So if you grow the same thing over and over in a field and you don't have the diversity and you use a lot of pesticides to eliminate pests, what you've done is you've created a buffet for the next generation of pests. And you do Mm. it year after year after year. Wow. Well, I loved reading about his farm in your book. There's so much more that our readers have got to get a hold of uh, when they when they read the book, but it's it's really entertaining. I, I'd love for you to talk to us about the difference in the nutrients, especially fats specifically, um, found in milk produced from cows that eat live plants versus cows that eat dead plants, and why, as you you put in the book, milk isn't what it used to be. Yeah, that was one of the most, uh, I think, sort of uh, uh, surprising results of this research to me, simply because I was not aware of the why behind the difference before. And when, if you think uh, about a cow's diet and what we feed them in different agricultural settings, there's, there's um, plants that are eat, they're grazing in pastures, eating living plants, and there's others who are raised in feedlots that are eating seeds, dead plants. Uh, and Importantly, different components of the plants, leaves versus the seeds, in effect. And the reason that makes a difference is that chloroplasts, those, you know, the, the organelles in plants that actually serve to drive photosynthesis and combine CO2 with water to build the carbohydrate bodies of plants, those reactions uh, involve omega-3 fats. And so the green leafy parts of plants tend to be rich in omega-3 fats. Seeds, on the other hand, are rich in omega-6 fats uh, because they serve a a whole different purpose. But there's that basic difference in the fat profile of what cows are eating, whether they're Mm -hmm. grazing a living pasture or whether they're eating a seed-derived or seed-oil-derived rations in a feedlot. And it turns out that those omega-3 and omega-6 fats are both what are known as essential fats. Our bodies and cows' bodies can't 
synthesize them. We can't make them from scratch. What we have to work with is what we get in our diet. And so when a cow eats a diet that's rich in omega-3s, grazing on a, a living pasture or diverse pasture, um, they're integrating a lot of omega-3s into their body, and that translates over into the content of their meat and milk. And one of the things that we um, um, uh, write extensively about in the middle part of the book, we divide the book into looking at sections on how soil health affect, uh, farming practices affect soil health, how soil health affects crop health, livestock health, and then human health in four mm-hmm. sections, um, is that the, um, those fat profiles in meat and milk really reflect, in, in terms of their omega-3 and omega-6 composition, what's in the diet that the cows ate. And if you look at the ancestral human diet, we had a ratio of omega-3s to 6s that were um, um, much much more omega-3s, fewer omega-6s than we have today in our modern diet, in great part because we've changed what our livestock are eating. And that translates over into health effects in the human body. That is so fascinating. I mean, it's it's just, it stands to reason. And yet it, I find it just kind of fascinating that, of course, it matters what you feed, whether it's plants or animals, and that that will change their chemistry. That will change their you know, nutritional value, so to speak, um, and that that would, you know, parlay into what you know, makes up our diets. And, you know, it, it, a cow is not just a cow. I mean, you, what they what you feed them and what they produce um, will be different based on what you feed them. It makes perfect sense. And yet uh, when you look at the research behind it, it's it's truly fascinating. You know, you do write about the fact that the American diet has shifted in the last few decades to include a much higher ratio, as you mentioned, of omega-6 fats to omega-3 fats. Tell us how this ratio of omega-6 to fats is to inflammation in our bodies and some of the common ailments that are associated with inflammation. Yeah, what is what's going on here is that uh, it, as it turns out, um, both of these types of fats, these are groups of fats. They're not just just one fat, but groups of of two different groups of fats. And our immune system of all things, you know, sitting there in our human body, it relies on fats to do two critical things, and that is to initiate uh, inflammation. And inflammation is our immune system's go-to process for, say, oh, dealing with a, a viral pathogen like COVID-19. Um, it also, inflammation is also really important for healing a wound, for uh, eating up uh, abnormal cells that are, you know, could go on to become cancer. And so we really want inflammation to be functioning and functioning normally. And that's where omega-6 fats come in. They're the starters of inflammation. But at the same time, inflammation is a really heavy-duty process because, you know, you're dealing with some really bad actors here, right? Pathogens, mm-hmm. abnormal cell growth, and so on. And so once that problem, once the specific problem is taken care of, you want your immune system to ramp down and turn it off. It's almost as if, you know, if anyone's been through a remodeling construction job in their home, say, um, you want your remodelers in and out as quickly as possible. If they stick (laughs) around, collateral damage. Walls Mm -hmm. get taken out that you don't want taken out. 
holes get punched in things, whole, you know, whole other problems start occurring. And so our omega-3 fats, these are the ones that resolve or end inflammation at the right time. And we write a lot more about this in the book, and, and it's really, really fascinating how our immune cells, they grab what they need out of um, our cell membranes, the particular fats, whether it's an omega-6 or an omega-3, so that they can either dial up or dial down um, inflammation. But when that's not working like it should, and you get and generally in, um, in the U.S. and, and other um, countries whose people eat mostly a, a Western-style diet, we've got low-level inflammation kind of running amok. In other words, it's just not ever really turning off. Mm-hmm. And a disordered immune system has been implicated in a lot of different disease conditions and health problems, everything from, um, you know, arthritis to different kinds of gut disorders. Um, asthma is, a, is disordered inflammation. Um, cardiovascular problems, neurological problems. So in other words, Jill, kind of every major organ system in our body, when it's, when inflammation is going on and on and on, it, it can take a toll eventually. And we really want to get this situation turned around. Yeah, we do. And it's amazing that our agricultural processes and procedures are at the root of so much of that due to what we're doing that changes the balance of those omega fats, six and three fats um, in our diet and therefore in our bodies. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with the co-authors of What Your Food Ate. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. We're talking to the co-authors of a new book called What Your Food Ate. And we have covered a lot of ground, but they cover so much more in their book. So you got to get a hold of this, this new book. Talk to us about what needs to happen in agricultural practices to achieve healthy soil. Well, you know, uh, the short answer to that is we need to uh, adopt practices that cultivate the beneficial life in the soil, that really promote the kind of nutrient cycling that Ann was talking about and the kind of processes that imbue our foods with a rich uh, diversity of micronutrients and phytochemicals. And the, the simple recipe for that is, is really ditch the plow, cover up, and grow diversity. And what I mean by that, uh, or what we mean by that, is uh, to essentially stop disturbing the soil with as much plowing uh, and um, to grow, to keep living plants growing and ex- producing exudates in the soil at all times, having cover crops between cash crops, and to grow a diversity of plants in the same land. Don't just keep growing the same thing or the same two crops over and over in the same land, because that's a recipe for pests and pathogens. Um, and it turns out that those three things, going to no-till cover crops and a diversity of crops, turn out to be pretty much the opposite of what's been taught agronomically for the last hundred years in conventional agriculture um, in terms of crop growth. In terms of uh, animal husbandry, well, we need to let cows graze regeneratively, have them live outside and graze on living plants rather than living indoors in feedlots eating seed-derived um, uh, rations. So it's, it's basically different farming practices, adopting regenerative farming practices, can rebuild healthy fertile soils, and that can have knock-on effects in terms of human health by enhancing the micronutrient, phytochemical, and fat profile in what makes it into the human diet. So, you know, for agricultural practices to achieve healthy soils, it's also about achieving healthier people. Well, and what I love about your book, Dave, and I'll give you a chance to react to what I'm about to say, but is that you show that this isn't a pie-in-the-sky theory of solutions, that this is scalable, this is happening, there are case studies of success, um, and, and I'd love to have you, you know, react to that, that statement. Yeah, you know, the visits that we had to farmers, you know, literally around the world in regenerative farming practices uh, through the series of books are, you know, we visit them because there are success stories out there and it's worth understanding them to try and look at the generalities of how to actually make that work. And, you know, if it can be done somewhere and it can be scale up somewhere, then it can be done in other places. And those thousand research papers that Ann and I read and integrated into the sources for the book, you know, we didn't read those for fun. <laughs> we, we, you know, there's a lot of science out there that tends, that is, you know, divided into different disciplines that people don't tend to integrate and look across. And what we're really arguing in the book is our agricultural policies, really our health policies, because what we do out to the land, we, in the end, do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't want to start a fight between biologists and chemists, but it really feels to me, and I'm just a layman, <laughs> like chemistry has had a little bit more influence over our agricultural process than biology, and maybe it's time to even the, the scales a little bit. Just my two yeah. cents worth. <laughs> yeah. So, Anne, what do you think? What can everyday people do to be part of the solution so that we can go from uh, a situation where we've got you know, an abundance of yield, but essentially less nutritious food to a place where we're able to feed the world, but uh, in a way that promotes good health and good nutrition. 
Yeah, I think part part of it, Jill, a big part of it, in fact, is for people to just get a basic understanding of how agricultural practices can affect what gets into the plant and animal foods that land on the dinner plate. Because once you, once you understand the basics, you've then equipped yourself to start having conversations and to begin asking questions. And great places to, to start conversations and be asking questions is, um, you know, if you've never, ever been to a farmer's market, I would encourage um, a person to check one out. It's a really different experience than going to a grocery store. You can actually talk with the person who grew the food that you're considering buying. And a real, you know, just a, you know, a conversation opener might be, hey, I was listening to this show or I just read this book about soil health and, you know, how do you, what practices do you have on your farm um, around soil health? That'll tell you a lot right away about, you know, what that farmer, what kind of practices they have. And um, so that's kind of a starting point. No, you don't need to go there, you know, every time you want to, you know, get a fruit or a vegetable. But um, farmer's markets are a good place to be, um, I guess getting exposed to ideas and having conversations like that. And then I think at some point we need to be understanding as consumers um, how how farming practices can sort of translate into some kind of label or some kind of indication to us in a grocery store about the nutritional qualities in these foods. You know, of course, I don't really think the meat industry is going to be putting, uh, you know, labels on about the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios. Mm -hmm. But if you understand that um, a pasture-fed cow is going to be, you know, producing a completely different fat profile, one that is, in fact, better for you. Um, you can go to the grocery store now, and you will actually see pasture-fed or grass-fed. What you, you won't see feedlot-fed, but what you can know is that the rest of the stuff is feedlot-fed. So those, those are just a couple of... Um, mm-hmm. Just a couple of examples, and the, just lastly, Jill, it's really important to for us to be eating whole plant foods and and fruits. And so, by that I mean, it's really not good enough to be eating this this faux meat that's made from vegetables. That sort of ultra processed food has stripped a lot of these things out or totally rearranged them that Dave and I have been talking about, phytochemicals, fats, and micronutrients. You want to get those three things in the proportions uh, that they are in the plant body, not taken out of the plant body, mixed up, some of the stuff's thrown out, other things get added in. So whole plant foods are best. Mm-hmm. We have about a minute left, guys, and it breaks my heart because I'd love to have you on all day. But um, in the final moments that we have left in the show, what parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, well, just quickly, I'll just go on. And one thing is we really need to broaden our definition of what is a nutrient. So there's all kinds of compounds and molecules out there that are not not related to, you know, calories. And so we need to get away from just calories and begin looking at what is good for our bodies. Dave, I talk to you. And I'll just throw in at the end that, um, you know, a key theme to the book that might not be a earth-shattering surprise, but we provide a lot of evidence for is what's good for the land is good for us too. 
If we were in church, I'd give you an amen. Thank you so much, Dave and Ann. <laughs> Listeners, I'm telling you, you're going to love this book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. It was so good having you on the show and so great to have all of our listeners joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.